Thank you, Gord. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you here. If you're visiting and you don't know me, my name is Paul Graham. I'm lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. And we are continuing. It seems like it's been forever, but it's only been two weeks. And we're coming back to Ecclesiastes and continuing our summer series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, we're on the home stretch now, chapters 10, two messages in 11, and then chapter 12. Um, Ecclesiastes has been, uh, as we've seen, a series of warnings about the false paths and the dead ends that we can find ourselves trapped in in life. And at the same time as it's been a warning of these dead-end roads, uh, it's also been a series of kind of direction signs and pointers away from futility and towards hope. And, of course, uh, the author, uh, Koaleth, the teacher, the preacher, Mr. Ecclesiastes, um, being uh, biographically very likely King Solomon, he's experienced it all. He's tried all of these dead-end roads, and he knows the way out. And so we take his wisdom here very seriously. Now, in chapter 10, the, the teacher uh, turns his attention to the danger of folly and foolishness. And he's talked about wisdom and foolishness at various times uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes. He's kind of inserted it here and there, uh, discovering that wisdom is better than folly, of course. But in chapter 10, he's going to emphasize specifically the futility of foolishness and folly. And he emphasizes the futility of foolishness in order to make wisdom all the more obvious and all the more attractive, and the hope that wisdom offers all the more, um, yeah, a goal that we would seek. And, and so if you came into church or you tuned into the stream today and you are thinking that your life has some effect of foolishness on it, either your own or others, and you're thinking today that you would love to have just a little bit more wisdom, then the teacher is teaching the lesson that is for you today and for all of us. Uh, We're going to use this lesson of his on folly as kind of a launching point uh, towards the biblical path of wisdom. And I trust that that will be profitable for all of us, as God's word always is. Uh, We'll just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us in this. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. Uh, who has died to redeem us and who has died in order to send us the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit now to conform our minds and conform our hearts to the things that you would teach us. And, uh, and Father, I pray that for myself as I speak. I pray that for everyone who is listening, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes, uh, would open our hearts, open our ears uh, to your wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you've read Ecclesiastes chapter 10 before, uh, you will notice it kind of reads a lot like Proverbs, which not incidentally is another book that Solomon wrote. And so it seems very disjointed because it's a series of maxims and proverbs and kind of quotes and advice uh, in various parts of life. And so we're not going to unpack all of Ecclesiastes 10. I'll leave that to you. But we're going to look at verses 1 to 3 again as kind of the summary of the description of foolishness. Learn what we can about foolishness and how it leads us to wisdom. Ecclesiastes 10 Verses 1 to 3 begins this way. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, and so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, 
but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. All right, like I said, there's a lot more to chapter 10, and I'm not going to go into all the things that chapter 10 goes into about foolishness, but I think this will give us a summary of foolishness, which will then allow us then to consider wisdom. So the first thing about folly or foolishness is that it stinks. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. The King James Version also gives us a picturesque or perhaps a fragrant translation. Dead flies putrefy the performer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. Yummy. So the idea here is fairly clear. Like one rotten apple, a tiny amount of foolishness spoils an entire jar of sweet-smelling ointment. So the perfumer here has combined his ingredients carefully. He's created this, you know, fragrant body oil, uh, this ointment that you would put on to smell nice, and he's got this container that he would probably divide into smaller bottles in order to sell, but the whole batch of sweet ointment is ruined when perhaps over Overnight, the lid is left off, kind of in his own state of foolishness, and flies get into the ointment and they die and they spoil the smell of the whole perfume. It takes a very small amount of folly to outweigh honor. Solomon would have us know that foolishness is so powerful that it destroys entire seasons of your life. A small amount of foolishness might destroy your whole life. And remember, this is an older Solomon speaking to a younger generation of Israelites. And so young people, most of which are sitting over here, and some young people over here, and maybe some older people who still have lessons to learn, understand this from Solomon. It is on his heart to let you know that one small folly can destroy years of honor. You can be honorable and wise for 30 or 40 or 50 years, and a tiny amount of foolishness can destroy a lifetime of honor. In one small foolishness, a career can be destroyed, a friendship can be destroyed, a marriage can be destroyed. One foolish impulse or lapse of judgment, something beautiful can be irreparably spoiled. A beautiful circumstance or a beautiful person. Foolishness, a tiny bit of foolishness can destroy you. And so old King Solomon, wise in his own way in foolishness, looks back on his own life and sees how his own foolishness destroyed and ruined what God had intended to be beautiful for him. Solomon would be the last king of a united Israel. His foolishness would result in civil war, division, and ultimately captivity. And so listen especially... A moment of foolishness, one act of folly can ruin a life, a person, a relationship that was intended to be sweet and good. And that's why we set wise sentries. That's why we watch out for unguarded moments. We have guardrails in the path of our life because the path of folly can lead us off the road that God would have us off. And guardrails are important to keep us from veering off into false paths. Which leads us to what Solomon says next, that folly finds false paths. You could say that foolishness is directionally challenged. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. 
Wisdom leans towards walking rightly. A fool goes astray. Now, the Bible generally treats the right side as the good side. It's the strong arm. It's the right hand for blessing. It's the right hand of authority. Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father. Uh, When he divides the sheep and the goats, the sheep goes to the right hand and the goats go to the left. That's right. Sorry for all you left-handers out there. Sinister people. So here, the fool leaning to the left means that this fool is going in the wrong direction. They are being led astray. And so we can ask ourselves, well, how does the direction of our life inform the wisdom or the foolishness of our decisions? As you look at the direction your life is going, do you feel you're being led wisely or astray? Are you moving into temptation or away from evil? Are you moving the right way in discipleship? Or are you falling away in your spiritual formation? Are you drawing closer to the people of God and their worship and service? Or are you wandering off by yourself like the lone sheep to the wolves or the prodigal son to the world? The direction of our life, the teacher says here, should tell us something about the foolishness or the wisdom that may be saturating it. And it's a heart issue, Solomon identifies. When our lives are trending stubbornly away from God and we find ourselves out of God's presence, away from the church and away from God's people and avoiding the scriptures and avoiding prayer and the personal pursuit of our faith, Solomon says that is your heart on a foolish path. And it's interesting You know, a a brother or a sister calls us out on this in our wandering ways. You know, they they come to us and they say, hey, I haven't seen you at church. You don't seem to be really following the Lord. When's the last time you read your Bible? Have Have you been in a small group? You're not joining with us together in fellowship. And we usually, at that point, when we are far from God, we have a hundred excuses. The church did this or that to me, or God didn't do what I want to do, so I don't owe him anything, or the Bible's too complicated, I want something simpler. It's not my fault I'm not there, it's your fault, it's the church's fault, it's God's fault. It's everybody's fault except their own. But if they take your questions to heart, and if it's you who have wandered, and if you are honest with yourself, you know the truth that Solomon says here, that it's not someone else's fault, it's your heart, it's your heart that has led you away. It's your heart problem that has caused you to wander. You, in your heart, wanted to act however you wanted and ignore the consequences. You decided you knew better than God what was good for you and that he was in the way of your enjoyment. Your heart either wickedly rebelled or foolishly took the selfish path. And the reason that you are apart from God and on foolish paths is because of your heart. So examine your heart. And to examine which way it is leaning you. Because it's just a hard issue. And then verse 3 continues the traveling metaphor. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So Solomon says it's obvious. Just by how we walk on the road of life, it's apparent who the fools are. As in every Shakespeare play or movie that you've seen, you can tell who the comic relief is just by how they appear on the stage or screen. Some goofy walk or goofy accent or talk, you know they are the fool of the story immediately. Usually everyone except the fool knows who the fool is. 
The fool thinks they are wise and cunning, and they usually have some subplot in the movie or the play where they are trying to accomplish something, and they think they are really clever about it. But everyone in the audience and everyone in the story is watching the fool in either laughter or dismay as the fool repeatedly suffers the consequences of their folly. And Solomon's observed this, and the teacher says this, just walking down the road, everyone knows who the fool is, and when they open their mouth, they tell everybody they are a fool. And we all know a few fools. We try to help them. You've explained to them, you've shown them that there is a wise way through what they are going through right now. And then after sometimes hours of counsel, we watch them ignore godly advice, follow their own heart, and suffer again and again and again. Because that's what fools do. And sometimes, too often, we're the fool that are ignoring the godly advice and choosing the way of our heart and suffering again and again and again. And if that's a pattern in your life, consider perhaps you may be listening to the foolish inclinations rather than the wise ones. Sometimes when we're the fool, especially when our folly leads us down paths that are then lead us to greater folly, one of the consequences of foolishness is that it leads to greater foolishness. And then that's exposure to even more consequences that can spoil the perfume of our life. You're a great dancer. Vodka. Now, that's kind of funny and mostly harmless. But it also, usually, the foolishness of drunkenness leads to, he's a gentleman, you can go home with him. Tequila. And remember, one small foolish moment can spoil the whole batch of your life. The beautiful past, the beautiful future of your life can be ruined with one ounce of folly, one foolish decision. Dan Allender writes, The fool will follow a path that seems to be right to them, even when the blacktop gives way to gravel, and gravel to dirt, and dirt to rocks, and rocks to debris. Almost nothing will stop the fool from plunging ahead into peril. And we've all seen this too many times, and so has the teacher. And many of the remaining verses in chapter 10 go on to point out the kinds of foolishness we get up to, which you can study for yourselves later this week. Solomon talks about the folly of planning evil works in verse 8. You dig a pit to trap someone else and you fall into the pit trap yourself. You dig through the mud and plaster of a house wall in order to rob from it and you're bit by a snake that lives in the wall. Verses 9 and 10, the foolishness of working or acting too quickly without a plan or skill. You hurt yourself working in rock or wood because you've not prepared properly, sharpening the axe. And also the foolishness of not acting quick enough. You delay charming the snake, and instead of it being a profitable day for you at the market, your slowness in charming the snake ends up with you being bit and costing you a medical bill, probably, in verse 11. So Solomon goes through with these proverbs in chapter 10 to say this is what folly looks like. Fools talk too much, listen too little. Foolishness begins with ourself and our heart, and it ends is bitter, and it stinks up what could have been beautiful. But Solomon would not want to leave us in folly. Remember, the strategy of Ecclesiastes is to draw our attention to the darkness in order to see the light more clearly. 
And so the alternative to foolishness that Solomon and Ecclesiastes esteems is wisdom, of course. He's arrived at this conclusion several times already in the book. In in chapter 2, he says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. And so to Mr. Ecclesiastes, to the teacher, he would have us see that wisdom is the light that leads us out of the darkness. Wisdom is the ray of hope in our futility of folly. Solomon found wisdom to be such a gift of God that he wrote a whole book simply on the blessings of it, the Proverbs. And in the Proverbs, we gain many insights into wisdom as perceived from a godly frame of reference. And so we turn from folly to wisdom. And we see, first of all, that unlike foolishness smelling, wisdom is sweet. Proverbs 24 says, My son, eat honey, for it is good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. You will find it. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. You see, wisdom is the opposite of folly. You find a little bit of folly, it destroys everything. (laughs) Here, Here... Solomon says, son, you find a little bit of hope and there will be a future. There will be a hope that is not cut off from wisdom. Proverbs 19.8, he says, he who gets wisdom loves his own soul. Or sometimes in your translation, it might be translated as just loves himself. He who gets wisdom loves himself. Now, that does not mean that the person who gets wisdoms finds themselves to be lovely or lovable. It means that it's a loving thing to do for yourself to acquire wisdom. There's a lot of talk these days about self-care. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. Make sure there's a lot of self-care going on in your life. Well, the Bible is not against self-care if it's understood rightly. Solomon says right here, do you want to show yourself some love? You want to do some self-care in your life? You want an activity that will care for you and serve you well? Then seek and acquire wisdom. That's how you care for yourself. That's how you love yourself, by seeking wisdom. Of course, the opposite is true. You want to destroy yourself? You want the opposite of self-care? Keep being foolish. You will definitely hurt yourself if you keep it up. So wisdom is sweet. It is good for us. It cares for us. We love ourselves when we love wisdom. And the road to wisdom begins with God, Proverbs tells us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in Proverbs 9.10, he flips wisdom and instruction around and knowledge around. He says in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You see, fearing God is the beginning of the path of wisdom. It is wisdom and knowledge to fear the Lord. And fear in the Hebrew context is reverent honor and awe. Fear in Hebrew is not, um, oh no, God is scary, run away from him, I'm afraid. That's not the kind of fear that the Bible talks about. It's actually just the opposite. It means that if God fills us with awe and causes us to tremble at his glory and we are attracted to his irresistible presence, then we are finally fearing God and we're finally starting to see things with wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Viewing God with awe and reverence is not actually the end of wisdom as you might think. You might think that's the wisest thing I can do. It is, but only because it's the start of wisdom. 
As if it takes a whole bunch of wisdom to get ourselves to God. It's not like we get ourselves really wise, and after we make ourselves really wise, we finally honor God. No, it's not the end of wisdom pursuits. It's the beginning of wise pursuits. All the other man-made religions will tell you, study really hard and you know, learn the sacred scriptures and work on being a wise person. And when you are really, really wise, you will achieve enlightenment and arrive at God. The Bible says it's the other way around. You guys are idiots. The beginning of wisdom starts when you come to me. That's when your wisdom begins. That's the start of it. You are never going to be wise enough on your own to find God at the end of your wisdom. So don't go on a spiritual journey without God. Start with God and let him give you wisdom. And thank heavens, we are not wise, and looking to God is where we start. All the future characteristics of wisdom that we are going to experience and learn, we will acquire because they flow out of first starting with God. God is like the river that the springs of of wisdom flow from. And the characteristics of godly wisdom are made evident through all of the Proverbs, of course, but elsewhere in Scripture as well. Just as a quick survey, we see that wisdom listens to advice Proverbs 12:15 Wisdom acquires knowledge in 18:15 shows restraint Proverbs 17:27 also talks about that in Ecclesiastes 10 where we are today Wisdom is humble in 11:2 it's insightful in 4:7 it sets us free from the world Colossians 2:8 says Wisdom does not waste it's not wasteful doesn't waste our life or our time in Ephesians 5:15 and I could go on and on about all the characteristics of wisdom that flow out of beginning with God. You begin with fearing God and all of these aspects of wisdom flow from God into our life. James was apparently keen on summarizing many of the characteristics of God-fearing wisdom when he wrote James 3:17. He just tries to tidy it all up for us. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Oh man, that's a good list, isn't it? Right, we just think about the path our life is on. We think about the words that come out of our mouth sometimes. We think about the things that we would want flowing into our brain and into our heart and into our life. And this list is basically it. That's what I want flowing into me. That's what I want flowing out of me. This is what I want guiding my life. I want this wisdom. What a great list. The wisdom of God is everything that we could want. In Romans 12.2, Paul encourages believers to transformation in their life by a renewing of the mind, he says in Romans 12.2. And by this renewing of our mind, by this wisdom of God flowing into us and transforming us, we'll know the will of God. And he calls it a spiritual wisdom in Colossians 1.9. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul wants Christians, his Christian friends, to be saturated with the wisdom of God for life-transforming purposes. And notice here, I'm not just talking about the wisdom of God's word. Of course, you almost go there by default, that God's word is wisdom, and so we need God's word, and it will instruct us and guide us. And that is absolutely true. It's the wisdom which follows God's word, but it is also the wisdom which discerns the way to act when there is no clear word from God. 
Both wisdoms are the same. Our wisdom isn't just, oh, let's look up in the Bible and see what I'm supposed to do. Oh, this verse tells me what I'm supposed to do. Okay, good. Sometimes we get that. Sometimes the Bible is that clear. Then there's other times in our life, and we're like, I need wisdom, and the Bible's not telling me what college to go to. Right? I need wisdom, and the Bible is not pointing out to me the woman I should marry. I need wisdom. But wisdom, both the wisdom of Scripture and the wisdom of life, flow from God. It's the same spiritual wisdom. There's no, discern, there's no distinction between them. By saturating our minds and our hearts with God's word, then we gain the wisdom of his word and we gain the wisdom to guide us in all situations. So seek wisdom. Seek it. Saturate your hearts and minds with the wisdom that comes from God. This is not only how you love God, but how you love yourself as well. He who seeks wisdom loves himself. When God demands our full attention, when he calls us to make him the only spring of wisdom and life that we drink from, it's not to satisfy his ego. It's not like God's ego needs to be satisfied by people taking pleasure in him and calling him wise. When he calls us to look to him as the source of our wisdom, it's because it brings us the greatest satisfaction. It's the most loving thing he can do for us is to say, listen to me. Because if you listen to anyone else, you will destroy yourself. So listen to me. It's the most loving thing I can tell you to do. And it brings me the greatest glory. Because as you listen to me and my wisdom proves wise, I'm glorified and you're satisfied. It's a good system that he's arranged. Makes sense. He's wise. So that's the beginning of wisdom. That's how we get started on the path. We look to God. We go to God. We fear God. We get into his word. How do we travel the path of wisdom? How do we do this? How do we get wisdom? Well, first of all, desire it. You have to desire wisdom. You have to make a conscious effort to say, I want to be wise. Proverbs 4 says, prize her, that's wisdom, highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you for your embrace. In other words, wisdom has to be valuable to us. In order to get wisdom, you have to give up or trade something else in your life for it. If it's valuable, you'll pay for it. Proverbs 2.4 says, seek it like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure. What would you trade in your life for wisdom? In order to acquire it, you have to give up something. You may have to give up some Netflix time or some video game time or some Facebook scrolling in order to get biblical wisdom. You're going to have to trade some Netflix for studying the word or listening to the word preached. You might have to give up finishing that video game that particular night. And you should feel, if you're trading Facebook or Netflix or video games, that you should feel in your heart that that's a good trade. I gladly give up Netflix to get some wisdom from God. Because it's valuable to me. If, If Netflix is more valuable to you than the wisdom of God then you're not desiring it. you got a value problem in your heart. Sometimes you may even have to give up some good things in order to acquire something better. Netflix and video games are cheap things to spend for wisdom. Sometimes the wisdom of God is so valuable to you in your life, you might even have to give up some good things. You may have to give up some time at the gym or jogging or biking. Exercise is good. But if exercise is consuming your time at the expense of gaining wisdom, it is not so good. Big muscles and marathon lung capacity will not get you safely through the next season of your life. Or your marriage, or raising your kids, or into heaven. 
You may need to create some margin in your career or your work life. You may even need to create margin in your family time in order to drink deeply of the wisdom of God because your work, your family, your marriage, your health, your studies, none of these will go well for you if you devalue and neglect the wisdom of God. You've got to spend some of that time on the wisdom of God or those things will lead to nothing. And ultimately, you may lose them. So desire wisdom and then apply yourself to study the word of God and meditate on it. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making, the wa- making wise the simple. Now that verse right there should land like a pure, distilled ray of hope and relief on all of us. The word and the testimony of God makes the simple wise, or makes wise the simple, as it says here in Yoda talk. (laughs) The word of God makes simple people wise. And as I said, that should be a ray of pure hope for all of us. It makes the fool into a sage. It makes a dunce into a scholar. It takes a clown and makes them a professor. And that is all of us. There is no greater collection of simple, foolish, dense, thick-headed clowns than the group in this room right now, including myself. Messing up everything that we touch, the opposite of the Midas touch. We bring our supposed wisdom to a situation and it only gets worse. But the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That is solid gold. The scripture has this transforming power over us to renew our minds and make us wise. If you only remember one thing today, remember that no one has to be a fool. God does not want us to be fools. He has given us all that we need to be wise right here in the word of God. And so desire it and love it and treasure it and apply yourself to study it and meditate on it and saturate your mind and your life with it. And it will make you wise. And you all know this because you know Christians that are farther down the path than you on this spiritual journey. You know those brothers and sisters that are in the word of God. And they know it. They can quote it back to you. You can name something in the Bible and they can tell you where it is. You tell them a situation and they can apply a biblical principle to it. They are saturated. And the reason you talk to them and go to them is you know they are wise. You know what? They're not. They're stupid. They just know the Bible. They're not wise. They know the Bible. They are as dumb as you are. They've just spent time in the Bible. And that has made them wise. You will never in your life, if you had a thousand lives, say anything wiser than what the Bible hasn't already said. So if someone comes to you for wisdom, don't give them your words. Give them the Bible. Saturate yourself in it. Another thing to do in order to find wisdom is pray. Solomon did not start out as the wisest man in the world, and he didn't get to be the wisest man in the world simply by reading the law 
although he did that, he asked God for wisdom. And God said, because you have asked for this and not long life or riches, I will do according to what you asked. Solomon asked God to be wise, and God said, okay, I'll make you wise. And we already saw that Paul prayed for spiritual wisdom for his Christian friends in Colossians 1.9. And James makes it as clear as it could be possibly made. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So you're on this path. It starts, it begins with fearing and reverencing and honoring God as the source and the wellspring of all wisdom. That's the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of wisdom. It continues on into saturating yourself in the word of God, desiring the word of God, treasuring the word of God, being willing to trade and pay anything in your life to be saturated by the word of God. And then if you continue on that path, you pray for wisdom and God will grant it. Basically, what this means is that the true wisdom that can actually transform your life and lead you into salvation is not something that you are born with inherently, as I've already belabored. You must receive this wisdom supernaturally. It begins by fearing God. It flows out of that reverence for God. It's acquired by treasuring God and his words, saturating yourself into it, and then praying that God will supply it to you because it comes to us supernaturally. It's not something you can acquire simply by study. Wisdom begins with God gained in scripture and prayer, but ultimately, wisdom finds its conclusion in Jesus. Wisdom, for all believers, for the whole world, whether they know it or not, concludes in Jesus. For wisdom to be life-transforming and life-saving, you have to wisely scripturally wisely, biblically wisely, come to acknowledge and submit to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And all of this wisdom talk and all of this life-changing talk finds its center in Jesus. At, At various points in his ministry, Jesus made these tremendous statements about his unique identity in the world. At different times, he compared himself as the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah, He declared himself to be the temple that would be rebuilt in three days. He's the lamb of the Passover. Again and again and again, Jesus says, me, this is who I am. I am all of these things to you. I am the way. And and it's no different in the case of God's promise of wisdom. Jesus says the same thing about wisdom. In Matthew 12, 42, speaking to the Pharisees who were asking, you know, Jesus for all these signs and to you know, prove who he was. (laughs) He says to the Pharisees, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says, (laughs) you guys, you fools. If you want to read about what he's talking about here, you go to 1 Kings 10, where we learn that the queen of Sheba, hearing how wise that Solomon was, traveled to Solomon, brought her whole retinue, brought animals packed with gifts, and Solomon answered every question that she asked him and and knew everything that she sought. And, And Jesus says here to the Pharisees that the pagan queen recognized God's wisdom when she saw it and honored it in Solomon and reverenced it in Solomon, and she will be able to judge you in the day of judgment, you silly Pharisees. This pagan queen of Sheba sees wisdom more clearly than you because she only saw Solomon, and you see me. You have me. 
I am greater than Solomon. I am the conclusion of God's wisdom. I am far greater than Solomon, and you can't even see it. Solomon taught and spoke the wisdom of God, but Jesus is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus is wisdom. Solomon spoke the truth and pointed towards life, but Jesus is truth. He is life. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Prophets declared the promises of God, but Jesus is every promise of God fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 1, 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3 says. In other words, to find true wisdom, you must find Jesus. You go on this path of wisdom, this journey of wisdom, and you get all the way to the end, and you miss Jesus at the end, then you haven't arrived yet. Jesus is the conclusion of the wisdom of God. He and his gospel are the wisdom of God in salvation. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.18-21 can't say it much better. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernments of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now that's a mouthful, as most of what Paul writes is. But you see what's going on here. God says, all the wisdom of the world is foolishness compared to my wisdom. What's my wisdom? My wisdom is I'm going to save the world through what it thinks is foolish. I'm going to send my son. And my son is going to live a perfect life. And he's going to die a sacrificial death. He's going to look foolish and shameful up there on that cross. And everybody's going to look at him and mock him and say, what a fool. He came to this earth to give his life for the people that are crucifying him. And God says, that's going to look like foolishness, but you know what it is? It's wisdom to everyone who is to be saved. Jesus is the end of wisdom for salvation and satisfaction for all people. You look at the cross. You look at Jesus hanging on the cross. You look at him saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And when you see that and you treasure it above all else and you see what Jesus has done, then you've arrived at wisdom. Because that's how you're saved. Through what everybody else thinks is foolish. And that's how our God works. He takes everything and turns it upside down. God will use a simple country church and a very simple country preacher. He will use simple parents who seem foolish to you in your teenage wisdom. God will use all these foolish things against the supposed wisdom and cleverness of the world. And by apparently foolish preachers and foolish parents and foolish friends, and in spite of all of your cleverness, God will save many through the foolishness of the cross. 
And in fact, he will even save your foolish hide. If you submit yourself to him, if you exchange all the cleverness that you think you have in your heart for the foolishness of the gospel, for the foolishness of God, who would humble himself, submit himself to his creation out of love to rescue it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have no desire that we be fools, <laughs> that you have given us your word. Remember, that's, there's one thing, two things to remember today. First thing to remember is that you don't have to be, we don't have to be fools because you have given us your word to make us wise. And that wisdom leads to salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the second thing to remember. That what might appear foolish to us in our heart and in our minds that we just think is the biggest, most ludicrous joke or story we've ever heard is the wisdom of God. And you have been using that foolishness to save the world for centuries. So, Father, we as a people want to reject folly. It stinks. It can destroy us. We want to embrace wisdom that begins with you, that comes to us through your word, that comes to us through prayer, that we treasure, that we desire, that we would trade anything in order to acquire. Make us a gospel and Bible-saturated people so that we are in a wise, not with the wisdom of our own minds or our own hearts, but with the wisdom of God and the wisdom that comes only supernaturally by your word and your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.